Well, good morning. Luke chapter 9 this morning. Luke chapter 9. We come to the only miracle, other than the resurrection of our Lord, that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. This is the only miracle that's recorded in all four of the Gospels, and it's a familiar story this morning, the feeding of the 5,000. We could go down to junior church, which, by the way, as the Lord would have it, in junior church this morning, parents, your kids are covering the feeding of the 5,000. So, obviously, the Lord wants your family to know about the feeding of the 5,000 this morning. So, parents, you better be paying attention so you can ask them really tough questions, okay? But this is the final opportunity if you will, for the Galileans, those in the northern part of Israel, this is the final opportunity for them to see and to respond to to the work of Jesus as he was preaching. This is is the final large-scale opportunity. This is the last time Jesus is going to do something to, to this scale in Galilee. Interestingly enough, If we were preaching out of John 6 this morning, we'd have a a little bit of an interesting angle on all of this. But in John chapter 6 and verse 66, the day after this miracle, when Jesus gets up in in the synagogue in Capernaum and proclaims himself, I am the bread of life, John records this in chapter 6 and verse 66, that many of his disciples turned back. Many of his disciples turned back. And you get the sense that, that this is kind of a watershed moment for many of the followers of Jesus. And, and they come to a point where it's like, I can go this far with you, but I can't go any further. And for many of us, the days and future that lies before us may bring us to that point as well. This does take place in Jesus' adopted hometown of Capernaum, the the follow-up to this. But prior to that, the miracle takes place in a very remote area on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Last week, we saw the disciples becoming apostles, where they were sent out. What's interesting to note is in our text today, they will go from being apostles back to Luke referring to them as disciples. There's some significance in that as we consider that. There's a shift and again, they, they, those who are sent out, still have more lessons to learn, which, which would indicate to you and to me that those who are sent on mission, we still have more to learn as well. So this morning, let's, let's put the Word of God in front of ourselves, and let's look at Luke chapter 9. I'm going to read from verses 10 down through 17 this morning. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, for there are about 5,000 men. And he said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. 
And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Father, this morning we come and we're thankful that you are the one who provides for us. And may your word this morning satisfy our hearts the way that these people were satisfied as they ate from Jesus' hand. I pray that your word would not only satisfy our hearts, but that it would charge our hearts, that that we would, would see in your word this morning how wonderful of a provider that Jesus truly is. May we never get tired of Jesus' provision for us. And may we believe here more thankful for his provision. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The emphasis of our text this morning, the the main thrust of the text this morning, is that Jesus sufficiently provides for needs. Is that Jesus takes care of all of our needs. Needs that we may not even realize that we have. But Jesus is the one who satisfies our needs. And let's just be honest. Life has a way of bringing us challenges. Life brings challenges to every one of us, and, and in those challenges, needs get exposed, do they not? Needs get exposed, and, and this morning, I want you to see how Jesus, and Jesus alone, is the one who meets those needs and satisfies those needs better than anybody. First and foremost, I want you to see how Jesus cares for these apostles that he sends out, and he satisfies their need for rest. In verse 10, they come back. Remember, they've, they've gone out. They've been given these, these, these orders in the beginning of this chapter that they were to go out and they were to preach the authority of the, of the kingdom of heaven coming and, and the, the good news of the gospel. And on top of that, they were given this ability to heal. Well, what, you find, what we would find out if we were them was is that going out and doing that and preaching with authority and then being responsible for healing of others can be exhausting work, can be exhausting work. It's even exhausting if people love what you're doing because, because if, you're, if you're healing people, if you're providing answers to their problems and you're giving them hope, word's gonna get out that you're doing that and more and more people are gonna keep coming to you. And so what we see here now is 12 apostles who come back and one of the things they're gonna report to Jesus is just simply this, we are so tired. Life is exhausting. Ministry is exhausting. I can just tell you personally that some of my best night's sleep have come after long days of ministry. Some of the best naps I've had have been in the last few months on Sunday afternoons. Ministry is exhausting. And the disciples were eager to come back and share all the things that they had with Jesus, but but. One of the things that happens is, is wherever these disciples now go, just like wherever Jesus went, they're known for being men who can bring healing and men who are going to teach and preach with authority and they're going to attract a following. So much so that as, as the, it's recorded for us in the other Gospels, when they came back to report to Jesus, they couldn't even get enough place for them, enough space to be able to eat together. Imagine this, they come back, they report to Jesus, they're sitting outside somewhere, and the press of people is so strong on them that they can't even get enough room to be able just to eat in peace together. 
And so here's Jesus, this great high priest, as the book of Hebrews tells us, who understands the need and he sympathizes with our weaknesses and he senses their weariness and he takes them away. Notice in verse 10, he said, and they withdrew to a town called Bethsaida. Now Bethsaida, we don't know exactly where that's at today. We don't know exactly where that is. We think it's on the north sea side of the Sea of Galilee. It's in a remote location, but we know this, that, that it's the hometown of a couple of these Disciples. It's the hometown of Peter and Andrew, and it's the hometown of Philip. And I love what Jesus does here. He takes some of his followers, he takes his followers to a place where some of them are very familiar with. Let's be honest, isn't it comfortable sometimes just to go home? Isn't it comfortable just to go home? And, 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 and here Jesus takes Peter and Andrew and Philip and the rest of the disciples to this desolate place that we see in verse 12, but it's home. And it's a place where we can find rest. And Jesus' intention is that he would get them there and that they would be able to rest. May I say to all of us this morning that rest is necessary? That rest is necessary? Because rest does this. Rest, if nothing else, reminds us that we are weak and he is strong, doesn't it? When, when you go to bed at night and you put your head on the pillow, or when you go home this afternoon and you take that Sunday afternoon nap, which is the best sleep of the whole week, I submit to you, when you do that, you know what you're reminding yourself of? I'm not all powerful. I don't have all the strength. I need to stop and I need to recharge. Just don't do it while I'm preaching, okay? But here's the reality. Rest is important because it reminds us that there is someone who is stronger than us. And every time you and I put our head on the pillow and we close our eyes and go to sleep, God, God in all his strength is not shutting down. He doesn't ever need a nap, but you and I need naps. Rest was a part of Jesus' life and ministry. We saw already in Luke chapter 5 and verse 16 that many times Jesus withdrew from his disciples and the crowds. He withdrew and went off to pray. He withdrew to get alone with his father. I would even say this to us this morning. It is not a noble thing. It is not a noble thing to be a person that never rests. The very pattern of creation is what? That God worked on six days, and on the seventh day he did what? He paused, he rested. And that, that in many ways is to be the rhythm of our lives. Rest means that we come to a, a stop or that we slow and that we trust that God will take care of it for us. The reason that many of us are workaholics is, is that we don't trust that God can take care of our problems. We have to do it all ourselves. In this case, however, though, this rest is going to be short-lived. But before we move on, let me just make a point of application here. When life gets you really tired, and I'm not just talking about physical tiredness. I'm talking about that emotional, mental tiredness. You know the kind of tiredness I'm talking about there where you just don't feel like you can even function anymore? When life gets you to that point, I would suggest that you run to the one who knows how to give rest, Christ, that you run to his word, that you go to Jesus. The disciples come back and they report to Jesus and Jesus intuitively knows that they need rest and he takes them to find rest. But as I said, this rest is short-lived. Notice verse 11. The crowds learned it. Well, the crowds didn't just learn it. 
Mark 6 records for us that, that the crowds that were so heavy that they couldn't even eat, when they saw Jesus and his disciples get in the boat and they saw the direction that they were headed, they literally began running along the coast. And they, they kept running in the direction that Jesus and his disciples were going in the boat. So literally the only rest that these men got was the time that they were in the boat. Now, I'm, I know that our Lord is the maker of wind and water, and so I'm just wondering if he caused the winds to just kind of slow down a little bit <laughs> so that they could just kind of lazily just float along there. And he's probably said to the disciples, Peter was probably ready to row to get over there and beat the crowds. He's like, just take it easy here, Peter. We're just going to have a leisurely trip here. Because as soon as they get to the other side, <laughs> they're met by the crowd that's already there. They're met by the crowd that's already there. And I want you to put yourself in the shoes of these apostles and disciples. You have given your time and your energy to serve the Lord. You've seen some great things. You've had some discouraging things happen in ministry. You, you, you have you experienced the highs and you've experienced the lows of it. And you just need to rest. And Jesus understands that. And he says, we're going to go over here to rest. And when you show up, the same crowd of people that you left is now on the other side. How many of you would be really thrilled with that? Be like planning a two-week vacation to a remote island to get away from all your, from all your fellow, you know, fellow co-workers, from all your neighbors, from some of your family, and when you show up on that island, they're all there. Now, wouldn't that be great? I don't think so. I don't think so. And so now, when they get to the other side here, I can only imagine what my heart would be like. I can tell you that they're not thrilled. Verse 11, when the crowds learned it, they followed him and they welcomed, and he welcomed them. And he welcomed them. You see, the second thing that Jesus is now going to provide for them, he provides rest as they go across in the boat, but the second thing he's going to provide for them is an example of how to meet people's needs again. Now, if you go back up earlier in the text, and you remember from last week, what were the two things that he sent them out to do in verse 2 of chapter 9? What was, the, what was the twofold ministry of the apostles as he sent them? Preach and what? Heal. Okay? Now, how many of you think that they got it right 100% of the time? You think they botched the message? Do you think that they probably botched the healing too? Probably. They probably didn't get it right because they're mere men just like you and I, and they probably didn't get it right, and I'm sure some of them came back and they said, what went wrong? Well, what's the best way to correct something that goes wrong? Well, it's to see it done correctly, isn't it? If, if you want to correct something that's done wrong, it's to have somebody give you an example of how to do it correctly. In this case, Jesus is going to give them an object lesson. Look at verse 11. He welcomed them. The disciples were not so welcoming, I don't believe, but Jesus is. He, he, he treats them as if they were his friends, and he welcomes them, and he says, I'm so glad you're here. Okay? And not, not only that, Mark 6, verse 34 tells us this, the motive behind Jesus welcoming them. It says that he had compassion on them because they were sheep having no shepherd. 
The example that Jesus sets for us here is this, to look beyond just the physical needs of these people and look beyond the faces to see their hearts and understand that we live in a world just like this world was, where there's a lot of people around us that have no shepherd. Aren't you glad that you have a shepherd who shepherds your heart? These are people that did not have a shepherd, and they're like little lost sheep. They don't know who to follow. They don't know what to do. They don't know where to go, and Jesus has compassion on them because he sees them for who they really are. Too often we see people as an annoyance. We see them as opposed to us. We see them as they have a different ideology than we do. We see them as, well, they, they're, they're liberal and I'm conservative. They're, they're red and I'm black and whatever, you know, whatever, however we want to characterize them. No, they're people who need a shepherd. And Jesus sees them as people who need a shepherd. And he welcomes them. And he does two things at the end of verse 11. They're the same two things that he told his disciples to do in verse 9. Do you see it there? If you're the kind of person who marks in your Bible, connect those two verses together. Jesus here is speaking to them of the kingdom of God. Isn't that what he had told them to go proclaim in verse 2? Proclaim the kingdom of God. And what else is he doing? He's curing those who had need of healing. Jesus is giving an example, he's providing an example to his, to his apostles that he sent out, his disciples. When they come back, he's saying, this, this, is, this, is what, this is how it's done. This is how you do that. He's reminding them, even though you're tired, even though they never seem to stop coming to you, you have to have compassion. Matthew records for us in Matthew 14 and four, verse 14, he had compassion on them. He was moved to alleviate their sufferings. Which brings to mind for me Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. That Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. And in his mercy he sets aside rest to compassionately serve the needy. Let's understand this. If you and I are going to adequately serve the people around us, if we're going to be able to, to minister the good news of the gospel and to point them to the one who's going to heal them, we're going to have to have a heart of compassion like Jesus. Unless you have a heart of compassion, you will not serve others. And that's what Jesus is providing here for them. This, this look into his heart, this heart of compassion. And he's doing that for us as well. But not only does he meet their, their, their spiritual need through his preaching and, and dealing with their physical problems like healing them, he deals with the mundane problems as well. These people left Capernaum. They followed Jesus all the way around on the shore. They ran over there, most of them. And, and now it's to the end of the day. It says there in verse 12 that the day was wearing away. We believe that this happened in the late winter, early spring in Galilee, northern Galilee. And so we can know by just understanding what the weather and, and seasons are there that that sun went down about 6 o'clock. The day's wearing away. It's probably like 4.30 in the afternoon. These guys are hungry. They've spent all day following Jesus, listening to Jesus. Many of them have been healed, but as they're listening to him, they're like, I really could use a Scooby snack right about now. Really could use a snack right now. In their haste to get there, many of them didn't take any food with them. 
And the disciples themselves, I've got to believe in verse 12, are hungry too. How do I know that? Well, they want to send the crowd away to go get food. The only reason you know that they're hungry is if what? You're hungry. And in verse 12, the disciples, I believe, have about had enough. It's now our time to eat. It's now our time to rest. Send them away. Which leads us to verse 13. Do you ever feel like Jesus asked you to do the impossible? Anybody ever feel that way? Jesus is asking me to do the impossible? No, Jesus does that sometimes. Notice what he does here in verse 13. Notice the command that he gives to them. You give them something to eat. And I have to stop and ask myself, why? Why do you give this command, Jesus? You know that they don't, you don't have enough money. And, and if you did have enough money to buy food, there's no place to go close and buy all this food. Right? They're in a desolate place. Okay? And I would submit to you that Jesus sometimes asks us to do the impossible because he's using it as a training for us. And here, this is a training question. And it points to their inadequacy, but it also points to his sufficiency. This question is going to point out to the disciples, you don't have the ability to do this, but it's also going to point to them, but I do have the ability to do this. Have you ever been in a situation where you realized, I can't do this, and then you realize that God can? That's exactly what's happening here. And here's their reply. Their reply is this. It's a twofold reply. And, and, and this passage doesn't give us the, the particulars of who does what, but, but John 6 does. In John 6, we find out that Andrew brings a boy to Jesus. Because Andrew, remember in the Gospels, Andrew is always bringing somebody to Jesus when we see him. Andrew finds a boy who has five loaves and two fish. And before we think that Andrew is this great bastion of faith, he just basically says this. Hey, I got a kid here who's got five loaves and two fish, but that really isn't going to help. Right? Then Philip, in John chapter 6, says this. If we had eight months of wages... He says this, if we had 200 denarii, eight months of wages, we wouldn't even be able to buy enough food here, Jesus. I don't know what you're talking about. We don't, we, don't have, we don't have enough money. We have five loaves and two fishes. Would you submit, would you agree with me that the need is great? The need is great because then we find this detail out. We find this detail out in verse 14. There's about 5,000 men. Okay, this, this miracle is wrongly called Jesus feeding the 5,000. This is probably more like Jesus feeding the 15 to 20,000. This is more like Jesus feeding the 15 to 20,000. They just counted men here, okay? And, and, and estimates are that there were up to, upward to between 15 to 20,000 people there to feed, okay? But notice now the shift in Luke at the beginning, in verse 10, he calls them what? What does he call the followers of Jesus in verse 10? Apostles, the ones who are sent. What are they called in verse 14? He said to his disciples, learners. He says to his learners. He, and Luke is cluing us into something here. They're now going back into the classroom. They're now going back into the classroom. I'm not sending you right now. I'm, I've got you with me. You're going to learn something here. And this is what he does. Verse 14, he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. 
True or false, that's a gift that even fishermen can accomplish. Right? They can accomplish this, right? We, we can count to 50. And Jesus says, put them in groups of 50 each. And I find great comfort in this. On the heels of Jesus asking them to do the impossible, hey, feed these people? He gives them a job they can do, which gives me some hope. Jesus is giving me jobs and giving you jobs that we can handle and that we can accomplish. And we're a part of this ministry. The disciples were a part of this feeding of this large group of people. They had an active role in this. You're going to see it. So they're counting, and they put them in groups of 50 each. And they, in verse 15, they obey, and they had them all sit down. You and I aren't called just to sit by and watch Jesus do amazing things. We're called to be active and be a part of it as well. We're called to be right in there and doing things. Now, there's no glory. Let's be honest. There's no glory in organizing people into groups of 50 and getting them to sit on the ground. Hey, I was the number one counter. I counted quicker, quicker than anybody else. I got more groups of 50 than Peter did. No, there's no glory in being a counter and, and an organizer. All the glory in this goes to who? Jesus. And that's the way it should be. But they all have a part in this. And then notice Jesus' miraculous provision. Look at verse 16. He takes the five loaves and the two fish, and he looks up to heaven and he said a blessing over them. He says a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. What's interesting about this is, is that there's three words in that verse that Luke will take and use in the Last Supper. Blessing, broke, gave. Blessing, broke, gave. The same Jesus who served his disciples in the Last Supper is going to do the exact same thing here with, the, with this large group of people. He's going to pray a blessing, the traditional blessing that, that any Jew would pray before they ate, and he's going to break the bread and he keeps giving it out. I think Luke is pointing us here that this is more than just physical food. <laughs> there, there's something greater coming. And John, John definitely refers to it in his gospel in John chapter 6. But, but understand the miracle here. Jesus just continues to break bread. Five loaves just keep breaking. And he keeps handing it out to the disciples. And he just keeps coming from his hand. He just continues to break bread. And, and I imagine the disciples are like... And the crowd is like, they're looking around to say, like, is there something he's got hidden somewhere that he's pulling this bread out of? Is he standing in front of a cave and somebody handing bread out to him? And he's just, no, he's literally there creating the bread and handing it out to them. You know, he doesn't just give them a snack either. Look at verse 17. How well did they eat? How well did they eat? They were satisfied. They were full. That word satisfied is, is the Greek word that is used to fatten up animals before you're going to kill them. Okay? That's the Greek word. That's what that means. Okay? Literally, it was like Thanksgiving dinner, man. They are like rolling away from the table. 
They're satisfied. They are fattened up. And I have to ask myself, are there times in my life when the resources look really slim? Would you agree with me that five loaves and two fish look pretty slim in a crowd of fifteen to 20,000 people? The odds are not good, are they? And there are times in my life, not just in my own physical needs, but yes, sometimes with my bank account, sometimes with, with, with you know, whenever we have unexpected bills or whatever, that the resources look pretty slim. Does it ever look that way for you? Who do you trust when the resources look slim? Who should we trust when the resources look slim? But Jesus doesn't stop providing there. So, so Jesus provides rest. He provides an example. He provides for the crowd. But fourthly, Jesus provides for his own. Jesus provides for his own. Look at the end of verse 17. They all ate and were satisfied, and when what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. One thing here that I note is Jesus doesn't want anything to go to waste, right? He wants it all picked up. Doesn't want anything to go to waste. And when they pick it up, this is just a coincidence, right? How many apostles and disciples are there, church? 12. How many baskets are picked up? Now, I can remember as a kid, whenever I used to have Sunday school with flannel graph, that the baskets were pictured really huge, like these big, huge containers, like laundry hampers. No. The word for basket here really means like a little lunch basket. You tell me what the purpose of the 12 baskets that were picked up was for. And understand this. When you serve the Lord and you serve him faithfully, he doesn't forget to provide for you. He doesn't forget to provide for you. How do I know this was for them? Well, let's keep your finger here and let's go over to Matthew chapter 16. I want you to see this. This is not a coincidence that there's 12 baskets that are left over. Later on, now, later on, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 5, the disciples are going to go to the other side of the lake again. This isn't right on the heels of this. This is later on in their ministry, okay? And when, verse 5, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread, okay? So the disciples have making a, made a trip across the Sea of Galilee, but nobody has brought a lunch. I imagine at this point it's like, Thaddeus, did you pack lunch? No. I thought it was Judas's turn to pack lunch. You mean nobody brought lunch? Are you kidding me? And, and, and it says here in verse 6 that... that that, actually in verse 7, that they're discussing it among themselves saying, we brought no bread. You see it there? They're like, okay, who's the idiot who forgot to pack lunch? Right? Verse 8, but Jesus aware of this said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? What is Jesus pointing them back to? This specific miracle He's pointing them back to this and saying, do you not remember after I fed the 5,000 men and all the women and children that were with them that after I did that, how many baskets were left over? And at that point, I imagine they're like, oh, yeah, 12 baskets, and there were 12 of us. You see, it's another faith-building experience for these disciples. It's another, it's another step in their development. 
Here's where my divine imagination goes off the rails, though. I wonder which one of the disciples shared with Jesus. He didn't make 13 baskets. You have to wonder about that. But I want to tell you this, that Jesus still cares for his own to this day. Have you ever heard of a guy named George Mueller? George Mueller was a very well-known evangelist in England in the 1800s who organized orphanages. George Mueller was an accomplished evangelist. He preached in 42 countries. He traveled over 200,000 miles by boat for his crusades. It's estimated that his orphanages cared for over 120,000 kids in England, took care of their needs. On one case, he records in his journal, which his journals contain over 5,000 specific answers to prayer. <laughs> He's an amazing guy. If you've never read about George Mueller, I would suggest you should read about George Mueller. But in his journal, it's recorded about this. Early on in his ministry, times were tough and they had no money. They had no food. And he had the kids set the breakfast table as they normally would. And the table was set and ready. And, and George is trying to delay as much as he can because he knows he has no food. And he's praying and he's like, Lord, what are you going to do here? But the time is for them to eat because they have to get off and they have to go to school. And so George says, I guess it's time for us to pray. He bows his head to pray and he asks, he asks God to provide for their daily bread and he thanks him for his provision. Okay, has he provided anything? No, but he thanks him very specifically in the prayer for his provision. And as he says amen, there is a knock on the door. And at the door is a baker from the local town who said this. He said, I, I was very much under the understanding that I was to get up this morning at 2 a.m. and bake bread for your orphanage. And he showed up with enough bread for all the kids there at the table. No sooner did he leave, there's another knock on the door. You can't make this stuff up, by the way. There's another knock on the door. The local milkman's wagon has broken literally down in front of the orphanage. He cannot deliver his bottles of milk. Guess who got the beneficiary of all that milk? Folks, the same Jesus who provided for 5,000 and women and children is providing for orphanages in England, and he's providing for you and I today. He's providing for you and I today. In Romans chapter 8, Paul eloquently puts it this way. He says this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So Jesus provides what Luke doesn't record that I want to draw your attention to is what happens in the next day. And so for that, we have to go to the sixth chapter of John. For a couple moments, let's look at John chapter six. Because everybody leaves that situation there in Bethsaida. They leave full, they leave happy, they leave amazed that, that Jesus has provided for them. And the next day, after Jesus has done the miracle of walking on the water as he sends the disciples across, he, he, he comes to Capernaum and, and a whole group of people show up there again. After all, if you got one free meal from Jesus the day before, would you not be tempted to get a second free meal the next day? 
People are no different, okay? When you're handing out, people will line up, right? And so another large crowd shows up. And instead of getting a physical meal, they get a spiritual meal. And Jesus gets up and he he loudly proclaims that I am the bread of life. Verse 35 of chapter 6. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And I want you to skip down to verse 47. Jesus says this. These are the words of Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. He points them back. He points these, these blue blood Jewish people back to their ancestry, back when they were wandering in the, in the wilderness. And he said, who gave you your food every day? And they, Well, God gave us our food every day in the form of manna, right? Every day we had to go out and collect it. And he says this. Your fathers ate manna. In verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And all of a sudden the Jews are like, no, I can't take this. I can't, no. I'll go along with you as long as you're handing out free food. I'll even let you claim to be the bread of life, and even with all of that. But when you say that you're giving your body, so that, and I have to partake of that, so that I will never die, I can't do that. What is Jesus giving, though? The same Jesus who provides rest, the one who provides for our needs, the one who gives us great examples, supplies our greatest need, and the greatest need is to be reconciled to a holy God. And that need can only be met in Jesus. And this is what he's saying here. Unless you partake in my sacrifice on the cross. He's not literally saying become a cannibal and eat of my flesh and drink my blood. But what he's saying is unless you appropriate it the same way that you would have to eat a meal. Unless you take it in. Unless you receive this. You can't have eternal life. But this is an offer of eternal life, is it not? This is an offer of eternal life. Jesus, the great provider, is saying to all of these people in Galilee, and he's saying to you and I today, not only am I here to provide your physical needs, not only am I here to provide you rest, I want to give you the answer to your greatest need. I want to give you the answer to how you can be reconciled to the Father. And you can have eternal life. And let's understand something. You're going to always need rest. Are you not? You're never going to eat so much that you're never going to never go hungry again. You're going to always get hungry, are you not? Those physical, earthly needs are never going to go away. But you can get your spiritual need taken care of forever in Jesus. Forever in Jesus. And so... Jesus, the God-man, died in my place. He died in your place. He took a physical death that every single one of us deserved to take. And what he's saying is, have you by faith taken Jesus as your bread of life? That's the whole point of this miracle. And that's the reason why many people, after hearing the aftermath of this the next day, said this, I will follow you as long as you're healing people. I'll follow you as long as you're handing out meals. But I am not going to follow you and trust you for my eternal soul. And tragically, many of those people 
we'll never get to spend eternity with Christ. And so the same meal, if you will, is set before us today. It's set before you. Do you want Jesus just to be, you know, the, the genie in the bottle in heaven who grants you all your wishes and takes care of you and makes sure that your bank account has enough money and that you have enough food on your table? Or do you want the Jesus who's providing you eternal life? Because they're not the same. They're not the same Jesus. This Jesus offers to us eternal life. Verse 58, he said, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And so, my friend, before you leave here today, <laughs> will you receive the bread that Jesus wants to give you, the bread of eternal life? Father, we thank you for your provision in the word. And to think about being there on that day when Jesus performed this miracle, just, it sends chills up my spine that Jesus could feed upwards of 20,000 people and create the bread to feed them. But even greater is the fact that Jesus would die on a cross for an unworthy person such as myself, a wretched sinner, so that I could have eternal life. That, that is miraculous. We thank you for the provision of Christ. We thank you for, for providing our physical needs, our needs for rest, our needs for, for food, for, for clothing, for shelter. But most of all, we thank you for being our bread of life. For those who have never partaken of that bread of life and have not experienced the joy of, of having sins forgiven and being reconciled to God, I pray that today would be the day that they would experience that. In Jesus' name. Amen.